Rap on VFBS with Kate Chabot. The final round of Armed Forces redundancies has been announced. I know that this has been a painful process, but completion of this final tranche will mark a turning point. What shape does this leave our army in? The long road to peace in Syria has the journey begun and the 3,000-mile road to recovery. More than 1,500 members of the armed forces are to lose their jobs as part of the final round of defence cuts announced by the government today. The Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, told the Commons earlier that the cuts would make the military affordable and sustainable in future. He also said the number of posts going was not as great as had been speculated about. It will comprise up to 1,425 members of the army and up to 70 medical and dental officers and nurses from the Royal Air Force and up to 10 from the Royal Navy. Mr Speaker, tranche four will apply the same selection principles within the eligible cohorts as used in the last three tranches. Selection for redundancy will be based on three criteria only, performance, potential and employability. Philip Hammond also told MPs the redundancies were necessary, but he admitted it had been difficult. I know that this has been a painful process. But completion of this final tranche will mark a turning point. With the bulk of our troops back from Afghanistan by the end of this year and coming back from Germany over the next four years, as we build Future Force 2020, they will be able to enjoy the peace of mind that comes from belonging to armed forces that have put a period of change and restructuring behind them and are focused on building their skills and capabilities for the future. But Labour Shadow Defence Secretary Vernon Coker warned that Britain's security could be put at risk. The Secretary of State just hasn't made a convincing case for carrying out further redundancies to the armed forces and reducing capability at an even quicker rate. Will he accept that there are real concerns that by pressing ahead with these redundancies, the government is taking risks with Britain's safety and security? Well, I'm joined by our reporter James Hurst in Westminster and BFBS Defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio. Hello to both of you. James, 1,500 redundancies announced today. Is this the figure we were expecting? It's the figure we were expecting a couple of days ago. A couple of weeks ago, there were seemingly credibly sourced reports that we're talking about 3,000. You go back a year and, and, and do the maths, as it were, about what's been talked about in the past uh, and, and the redundancies that had already been made. And actually, a year ago, we thought there could have been as many as 5,000 in this redundancy tranche. So it, it is certainly smaller than it might have been. And Philip Hammond said that the army has made efforts to do that in part by trying to encourage people to move into gapped jobs areas where they actually need more people so they're trying to they've been he says they've been trying to encourage people to actually transfer their skills and update their skills to move into those spaces and will these redundancies be voluntary or compulsory it is a compulsory scheme so ultimately uh, the army chooses who stays and who goes but people can if they're in a redundancy field put themselves forward a, make an expression of interest and we have been told that once again 
they will seek to do all they can to maximise the choice of volunteers. Uh, the Defence Secretary you know, pointed out in, uh, in previous tranches we've seen uh, as many as 80% volunteers going. But he played down whether or not the figures would be that high this time, in part because we've seen a lot of people volunteering and going already, mm. but also some of the areas like the Gurkhas where people see, are, are seen as less likely to put themselves forward. So those who are affected, how and when will they find out, James? Uh, my understanding is people who are in a uh, redundancy field whose job is now up for consideration should have been told today themselves. Of course, inevitably, there are people who perhaps can't quite be got to, but most people who are in a redundancy field should be told uh, by one of their senior officers that, yes, your job is now up for consideration, and they then have to go away and think about whether or not they want to apply. Christopher, back in 2010, the government was criticised for making cuts simply to save money. Have we moved on from that? Do you get the feeling now that the government really knows what it wants from its British army? No. Uh, it was certainly to save money, 2010, which was the Great Review, which said, look, we'll need to get everybody down to, and then in July of that year, down to this idea of 2020. It's what the army, mainly the army, will look like. If you think about this logically, once you've decided that you've got to get the forces down to a certain level, I mean, for example, um, you know, coming down to 82,000 with the army's point of view. You don't just say, right, let's get rid of 82,000 guys. You have to say, what are we left with? What sort of structures? How many battalions? What sort of battalions are they? Uh, armoured infantry or, or, or whatever? You, you have to look at it in that way. You then say to the government, we can actually reduce it in this way, but what do you want us to do with these forces? Because there's no point in just saying, well, right, we get rid of all the tanks. Uh, and then and then that's it. So you go to the government and say, you've got to tell us what you want us to do. And the inference at the moment is no more Afghanistans, no more Iraqs, etc. So what are you going to do? And so you have to still keep on doing Cyprus, Falklands, normal deployments, 24, 24 operational deployments going on at, at the moment. And these are going to be smaller uh, different types of forces, not heavy armoured types of forces, relying far more, uh, for example, on, on, on helicopters instead of tanks, etc. That is the size of the problem for the services, mainly for the army. It's interesting that, um, uh, James, I mean, you, 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 you were talking about last year, was it four, four and a half thousand yep. people last June uh, sort of went. Eighty-four percent of those mm. were volunteers. Yep. You can't do that anymore. Mm. Uh, James, there were some kind of caveats put in, weren't there, in this announcement about voluntary redundancies? Yes, and it's essentially the, the, the caveat that we have heard before, which is that uh, you know those uh, who, who come forward aren't necessarily going to be the ones who are selected because what the army has got to do here is find the right balance of skills. Mm. So it's not just picking the people who want to leave. It's, it's about leaving the right balance of skills. The other slight change from last time is is where people volunteered for redundancy uh, and were accepted and were due to deploy on operations, mm. uh, th th they would not then have to deploy on the operation between being accepted voluntarily for redundancy and, uh, and actually being made redundant. Because of the drawdown in Afghanistan, yep. because they might have to shuffle people around, they're saying, if you volunteer but you're down to go to Afghanistan, you will probably still do that. There's an interesting thought here, and I heard uh, the Defence Secretary say it once in the comments, but it's been bandied around uh, the MOD for the past three or four weeks. This term, employability, 
Um, it's a lousy word, but it means everything if you want to think about the forces in future employability. Can we employ the people we've got left? Also, the people we're going to recruit... How do we employ them? You then go over to the Foreign Office and the, and the Army, especially goes to the Foreign Office and says, we're back to this idea. Look, employability, what do you want us to use them for? Yeah, that's actually interesting because I just wanted to bring in some of the comments that have been posted on one of the BFBS Facebook pages today. Uh, Christopher, there's one here from a, a Jeremy Lavender who says the issue is loss of highly trained, experienced troops against the new inexperienced. Yeah, I, I, I don't quite buy that. I mean, I can, I can see that you've got... You, You've got uh, very experienced troops, and largely because the operational details such as... I mean, this is the fear of the employment of the reserves, isn't it, uh, basically, the boost in the reserve numbers. Yeah, and also Afghanistan, when you've got people who are very experienced operationally there, but people back in in the camp. The other thing is, you've always got uh, recruitment going on. You've always got inexperienced troops. It's the structure you put them into... That becomes very, very important. And so with the reserves, which is a huge problem at the moment because there's high employment in the United Kingdom at the moment, therefore you won't get the reserves, the numbers that you wanted to, because they've all got jobs. James, Natalie Jane Moon has asked, do we know which trades are being affected? Her partner is currently on a three-week exercise. Uh, Do we know... Uh, yes, do I know? No. And actually there was a little <laughs> bit of consternation in the Commons, because there, there is always a lot of detail with these things. There was a bit of consternation in the Commons that a document saying, you know, exactly 17 people doing this job, 24 people doing this job, hadn't yet been made available. Um, I, I have been trying to get, get hold of that document, and it is there, it does exist, and the people who need to know broadly should know, but I'm afraid I can't answer Natalie's question personally. I hope to have that document a bit later. James, a couple of people, uh, Sammy Owen and Edward, Edward Mus- are a bit dismayed that there is still recruitment going on, saying that it's making no sense. And why is there active recruitment when people are being made redundant? Yeah, and this is a thing that confuses a lot of people, and and it is something that both the politicians and actually the army have been spending a lot of time trying to explain. Uh, I heard a senior army officer saying, you know, basically, uh, soldiering is a young man's and a young woman's game. And Mm. the way they see it is they, they can't just turn off the recruitment tap because you will have have an army that is getting steadily older and more experienced but then you will lose the ability to actually train up new young people to take their place and bring in that new blood if you'll pardon the phrase. You you definitely need younger people coming in all the time. The average age in the army for example is in the low 20s and what you if if you didn't if you stop recruiting everybody become a sergeant next year mm-hmm. and so you've got to have that continuity also uh, don't forget you've got to recruit because people who are staying in the services are actually going out at the other end you know they come to the end of their term of of, of, of engagement etc so recruitment is always going to be there and it's not just reservists it's for the regular forces as well uh, james uh, andy mcgarry mcgarry says if you believe this will be the final cut you'll believe anything as soon as troops are fully out of afghanistan just wait for the next review. Okay, define final is the point I would make there. What the government have been absolutely clear about, absolutely stated firmly as a commitment, this is the last set of redundancies to meet the restructuring that was laid out in the 2010 Defence Review and also a year or so later about rebalancing reserves and regulars. However, when the chairman of the Defence Select Committee raised this with the Defence Secretary, he said, what commitment could he give that there would absolutely be no more redundancies? Philip Hammond said, I can't predict what will happen in the next Defence Review, Hmm. and that will be 2015. There's a review going on at the moment to have a look 
at what the British Army especially will need in 2015 and what the Navy is going to need when they get their aircraft carriers. That could change all the promises and all the hopes. All right. Uh, Chris, stay with us. James, thanks very much for that. Um, Chris, just a final question to you. Um, are the armed forces still a good place to work? Yeah, I think so. Um, you see, all the doomsters on this, uh, I've got to take into one consideration something like 20, 25 operations going on at the moment. No more Afghanistans, no more Iraqs. But the forces are actually not quite stretched. But in different ways, they're still doing it. You've still got to do Cyprus, you've still got to do uh, the Falklands, you've still got to have a deployment, let's say, in Canada, etc. The other thing to remember, you can never second-guess what your next operation might be. You don't know whether there's going to be a Sierra Leone, you don't know whether there's going to be a Central African uh, a republic, you're going to have to send the RAF in to support logistics. And that is why I think anybody sitting in Gatrick, uh, Gatrick at the moment in the sort of second week of their training, um, it's very good that they probably won't know what they're going to be doing in the next five years, but by goodness, they'll be doing it. Well, let's talk about uh, military thinking now, because NATO's chiefs of defence are meeting in Brussels. Not a great deal of coverage of this in today's papers. Who's there, Christopher? What are they talking about? It's the military committee. It's the, these are the sort of chiefs of staff and the chiefs of the defence staff uh, turn up. This is the 170th meeting of the military committee. Uh, is it an annual, an annual meeting, this one? Well, it goes on. It, the military committee exists all the time. But then you have the, the chiefs of the defence staff from all over NATO turn up and discuss the big issues. So what happens if somebody says we've got to get involved in Syria? What happens if we've got to put a, a, a new force into the Gulf, etc.? And so the, the chief of the defence staff, for example, of Jordan is there. So is the chief of the defence staff of Russia is there. Hmm. Because we are now thinking far more than the old style of NATO where you just sort of sat there and said it was Europe and that was it. Will they be talking much about this uh, decision by the EU that they want to make moves towards sending troops into the Central African Republic? Is yeah, that something on the agenda? Yeah, because what's happened earlier, uh, earlier in the week, the European Union met, and it's not the same as NATO, a lot, although a lot of members are members of NATO, but, for example, Ireland is neutral, mm. a neutral country, but they're members of the EU. And the EU said, right, we're going to send 500, which is about a battalion would of people. The, would in. this concern NATO if the EU is it going would, to... It would concern NATO for two reasons. One, where the troops are going to come from, because you can't just say, because there's no European Union army. And then you've got the British, for example, who say, no, we don't want to do that because we don't want the European Union to actually sort of take these decisions. Then the United Nations has got to control it because the United Nations actually is the, is, is the uh, humanitarian force in the Central African Republic. And so NATO is sort of rubbing its hands and saying, listen, do not mix the two things. If you want to talk about Na European uh, deployments, then talk about it as individual governments. But go to the United Nations to talk about it because they're going to have to command it. There's no point in a European organisation turning up and says, oh, we're in command, and the United Nations guy says, push up, buck. You know, we're in command. Christmas Day with us. Sit rep. Still to come, row to recovery. Four British soldiers complete the gruelling 3,000 mile row across the Atlantic. PFBS Sit rep. Syrian peace talks are underway in Switzerland. Today, the UN mediator Lakhdar Brahimi is talking separately to the Syrian government and the opposition to see whether a face-to-face -face meeting will be possible tomorrow. Yesterday saw angry speeches from both sides. We're joined now by Professor Rosemary Hollis, Professor for Middle East Policy Studies and Director of the Olive Tree Scholarship Programme at City University. Uh, Professor Hollis, thanks for joining us. Did you ever think you'd see these two parties in the same room? Well, yes, given the amount of work that went into getting it off the ground 
In fact, if you remember, they were talking about getting it off the ground last summer, a year on from so-called Geneva 1. So we are unaware of quite how much work has been done, but we do know that the relationship between John Kerry of the U.S. and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has been productive so far. And the heinous crimes of the Assad regime, about which we keep hearing more and more, in a sense, bring the Russians closer to the American position that he's an embarrassment. And the success of the rebel elements that are so extreme, that is, the Al-Qaeda and Nusra Front types, also brings the Americans and Russians together on the issue of Syria because neither of them want those elements to be more successful. Christopher, um, given what Rosemary was saying there about perhaps changing attitudes, do you think that there is a chance of some progress here? Yeah, don't look for it at this session in Geneva. <clears throat> Important thing is started the whole idea of getting them together uh, started uh, in 2012 and then the summer they started chatting and the backstairs sessions we weren't in geneva were we six months ago and i think that is the thing we shouldn't forget these people have come 30 nations but we're only interested in in the protagonist at the moment the bit that's missing i was thought rosie is that china's keeping quiet about this yeah what is rosemary, rosemary what, what is china's position on this at the moment well, you could also say that Iran, even though their president is at Davos at the moment, just down the road, as it were, from the talks, is not present at the talks. I, I personally would not worry too much about the uh, absence of the Chinese, simply because they can trust the Russians to uphold the sovereignty pr principle, which is the, the main Russian line, that you know, we, the, the West had to be stopped from intervening for another regime change like they did in Libya, because that cuts right across the interests of both Russia and China in the maintenance of the sovereign integrity of nation states. They don't like this responsibility to protect being used to topple regimes. That said, I'm saying the Assad regime is embarrassing all his supporters, the Iranians included. Christopher. There's a point here, isn't there, that tomorrow, for example, if, uh, if they can be persuaded to, the two representatives of the protagonists will meet eventually together. One of the first signs, and it may not happen this time at Geneva, but one of the first signs that something is happening is the suggestion, and picking up the suggestion, that there would be humanitarian corridors in Syria. Mm -hmm. The people at the moment who can guarantee those corridors, in other words, that they won't be broken, that people can get out and aid can get in, are the people who are not at the meeting in Geneva, and that is the, the so-called rebels who are fighting uh, the, the, the Assad armies. But the point is they are going to be discussed, and the hope is that that will be the first sign that something is possible. We are in the business here of the slightest movement. It is a very, very long haul. Professor Hollis, do you think that the attitudes towards the humanitarian issues are perhaps the first chink of hope that could be in all of this? Well, certainly for all the Syrians involved in the fighting, be they on the government side or on the rebel side, the knowledge that the whole country and therefore their future is being demolished before their very eyes 
and that it's counterproductive to be fighting like this. And it's appalling to be part of the kind of carnage and brutality that's going on. That logic will not totally escape them. So I suppose at some level one is aiming to get the Syrians to see the value of working with each other at the expense of the foreign extremists who are in fact tools of the Saudis amongst others at the moment so anti the Assad regime are the Saudis. Do you think there could be any agreement on how the sides that are in uh, Switzerland might deal with the extremists? Well, the, the, the other thing is, I think the objective is twofold. What Chris was saying about humanitarian corridors, yes, at a minimum, the hope is that there can be some ceasefires in some regions, maybe around Aleppo, to get humanitarian aid in, even if there is not a grand ceasefire at the national level. And secondly, they want to engage Syrian protagonists in a process that doesn't end. They don't want to finish next week. They want to get them into conversation, get them grappling, grappling with the main issues and therefore in a process. So, Christopher, what do you think is the most positive thing that could come out of tomorrow? I think tomorrow uh, would be some uh, acknowledgement of the need for the humanitarian corridors. And then, behind the scenes, which we won't know about, uh, is a system of guaranteeing those corridors, of letting in and out uh, along those corridors. But the thing we've got to remember, if you look historically... You look at the Balkans, you look at Northern Ireland, etc. These things aren't decided by a couple of meetings at Geneva. So this is, is a be... long, long, long haul. And it may be that the longest part of the haul is what happens to the Syrian or the governance of Syria. Of It may be the, the Assad family is, 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 is eventually the sticking point. And also the other part of it that we, we cannot even guess what would happen and that is the so-called rebels. And when you consider there are probably more than 100 different groups fighting there, the bloodbath that they envisage that could happen between themselves, not just with the Assad regime. So that's the complication of it. Long haul, look to the history of how long these things take. But this is moving, actually, I think, quite quickly. Professor Hollis, do you think there'll be a Geneva 3? And, and, and could you sort of perhaps, a bit unfair of me really, but predict in a year's time what the situation might be in Syria? Mm. Yes, that is a bit of <laughs> However, uh, I think, as Chris was intimating just now, that the signals are not all negative. And in a sense, it had to get worse before it got better. That the survival of the players, especially the Assad regime, family and regime, is on the table. I think that was why the Syrian foreign minister was so belligerent with Ban Ki-moon yesterday. It was because if, if, if the deal is that the Assad regime has to step aside, the members of that regime are dead men walking. The, somewhere in the negotiations going forward, there will have to be something with the devil. Assad will have to be persuaded to cooperate with a transition process. And obviously, the first 
thing that he needs to be guaranteed is that he and his Alawi minority in Syria will not be wholesale slaughtered once there's a new regime. I think there's another scenario to this. If Assad is to go, I think perhaps it'll be in a palace revolution for somebody within the organization or a group in the organization of his to say, right, we have to guarantee their safety, but we have to show that he can go and we're the people to do it. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Professor Rosemary Hollis from City University, thanks for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Four British soldiers, including two injured by blasts in Afghanistan, have completed a gruelling Atlantic rowing race in third place. The row to recovery team, made up of Lance Corporal Cale Royce and Scott Blaney and Captains Mark Jenkins and James Cale, crossed the finish line in Antigua on Tuesday night. Our reporter, Kath Brazier, was there. To the accompaniment of boats, cannons, horns and hooters, the Road to Recovery crew rowed their last strokes into English harbour. After 3,000 miles, these ocean rowers were back on dry land, crossing the finish line in 48 days, 9 hours and 13 minutes. For Captains James Kyle and Mark Jenkins, the welcome was overwhelming. Ultimately, I think we've exceeded all expectations. We never thought we'd be as competitive as we have been. Um, and I think we've done incredibly well. No, we were, one bit. we were concerned that we were, yeah, was, we were yeah. coming in at night time. It wasn't going to be and very no good. And be we were worried yeah. that it wouldn't be a, we wouldn't get the, the message across we wanted to get across. One of the faces in the crowd was particularly special to double amputee Kale Royce. Sergeant James Short is the light dragoon soldier who administered first aid to Kale when he was blown up in 2012. 18 months ago, he was he was on me in a flash, and he uh, he saved my life. He literally saved my life. So it's fantastic to yeah to to see that you know I'm getting on with things, and uh, you know I'm glad that we can celebrate and have a couple of beers together after this. It's fantastic. Even during the worst part of it, he was such a tough bloke. He always knew that he was going to achieve something. He was, he did these sort of things before. Um, an adventurous kind of guy so for him to do something like this in 18 months I mean it's, it's unbelievable uh, when he told me stories last night about some of the, the waves and that sort of 30, 40 foot high it's, and when you look at the size of that little thing it's, it's insane how he's done it More people have climbed Everest or been to space than have rowed the Atlantic it's not for nothing that it's dubbed the toughest rowing race in the world Almost 50 days at sea, battling unforgiving conditions 24-7, brutalises the body, as Lance Corporal Scott Blaney can attest to. I mean, you're sitting down for a long time, so your backside takes a lot of uh, battering, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, pounding, yeah, definitely. So you you a lot of chafing, stuff like that, a lot of arm rubs, a lot of blisters, your hands, definitely, especially my foot as well, and all stuff like that. So your body takes a different pound, and I think it's the mental side more. By coming third, the team have achieved above and beyond what they set out to. Whilst their selfless teamwork was a key element in the crossing, so was their relationship with Atlantic Polo, the team that came in second. Henry Brett says after training together, it was hard to keep them apart. It's brutal. I don't ever want to do it again. I'm really glad I did it. I'm really glad I've achieved this. But it's it's something it's something else. And and, and those guys to do it with with the disability they have is, is, is you know, massive respect. Almost 48 hours on, the team have been enjoying the simple things in life: good food, clean clothes, and time with their loved ones. Relaxing, safe in the knowledge 
that they've proved it's possible to look beyond injury to achieve the extraordinary. That was Kath Brazier reporting from Antigua. And guess who's heading off to Antigua this evening? Yeah, I'm Or is it tomorrow, Christopher? Tomorrow morning. To I party should... with them? I sh- uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, a pa- it's a party uh, we're having down in, in Jolly Harbour. Do you know, I, f- I sailed into Antigua, into that harbour there in at the moment, first time 20 years ago, in a boat called Mega Bitch. <laughs> And she was, I promise you, the spinnaker blew out on the final approach, which spoiled the grand entry. These guys think they've completed their challenge, but they haven't met you there, have they? <laughs> no, I managed to hit one. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, let's look ahead to next week. First of all, we must start, I suppose, with Syria. What developments there, you think? Uh, well, it's going, they're going to have to slug it out very quietly, and then somebody will turn around and say, listen, we're going home, whatever. But there'll be more uh, Genevas. Uh, I would watch for a, def- a, a, a defection from Assad's cabinet. Mm. I think that's the next move that we've got to start thinking about. And then people say, ah, oh, is that the end coming? I don't suppose there's going to be any uh, defections in North Korea. No, but what it is, I've seen a letter that the uh, that Foreign Secretary William Hague has written uh, into Parliament. And apparently they try to get BBC World Service to put television and radio broadcasts into North Korea to try and influence people. And BBC World Services can't do it, can't do it. All right, State of the Union address. Biggest and most important speech that the American president is likely to make next year. Next Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday evening. We'll hear about it Wednesday morning. It's when he gets before the joint houses of Congress and says, this is the state of my country. And we, from that, will learn about his attitude to the world and therefore our part in it. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to you, Christopher, and all our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to the programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.